Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from the first 14 verses of this chapter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the uh, chairs ahead of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, if you don't own one, please feel free to take that home with you as our gift to you. We would love for you to uh, leave with a copy of the Scriptures if you don't have one. Uh, we'll replace it in the chair. Um, you can take that as a, your gift from us. Matthew chapter 22, starting in, verses, uh, uh, starting in verse 1, we're going to read this parable from the Lord Jesus. Jesus, verse 1 says, spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Well, you clearly saw it was obvious when we dedicated those babies that there's the difference between Tom and Lauren and, and, and uh, Keith and Brianna and Kirk and Beth. Tom and Lauren and Keith and Brianna have their firstborn child, and Kirk and Beth have been around the block a few times with their third. You know what that means. Uh, Kirk and Beth have learned a few things that uh, Tom and Lauren and Keith and Brianna have yet to learn. One of them has to do with the phenomena in a family of repeated stories. I'm not talking about books that you have to read over and over and over again. That happens. Uh, uh, we had a rule in our house that I would only read a book twice in a row before you had to pick another one. I'm not talking about those books. I'm talking about stories that you have to tell over and over and over again. In our family, that story was the Great Perry Pajama Factory Fire. I grew up in Perry, New York, and, and uh, down the street and around the corner, down a couple blocks, uh, when I was growing up, when I was born, there was a pajama factory. It was a huge facility. It had been there a long time using, originally when it started, water from the uh, water for power from the creek, that, uh, the, the large creek that ran next door. It was a monstrous facility. And when I uh, was uh, two or three, I wore pajamas that came from the Perry Pajama Factory. Well, 
Sometime in the mid-70s, they sold the pajama factory to another man who was going to use the equipment there to make awnings for tents. And the business did not go well. It was a failing, as a matter of fact. So uh, one day, uh, as a special surprise for his birthday, in the dead of winter, the friend of the owner of the factory set it on fire. If nothing else, you can get some insurance money out of this. So uh, uh, fire at the Great Pajama Factory. Uh, we were all snug in our beds on this cold winter night in western New York, and, uh, but we were awoken. My parents were, uh, woke up when the phone rang, and it was friends from church who lived down the street and uh, around the corner and up a hill in the opposite direction, who said to my, and Bill, our friend from church, said to my dad, uh, do you want to evacuate the children to our house? And my parents, my dad said, what? That was when he noticed that on the ceiling in their bedroom were the, the, the flashing lights of blue and red fire trucks. And, and they, they looked out the window and they saw flames and smoke from the pajama factory and floating in the air, pieces of cotton, burning pieces of cotton floating in the air around our house. My dad said to Bill, yes, we'll be right up. So they woke us up, my older sister and I, my younger sister hadn't been born yet. They bundled us in our warmest clothes and they had discovered, by this time they'd looked out and, and discovered that um, the fire companies from around Perry had come to help put out the, the fire and they'd hooked their hoses up to every fire hydrant within several blocks so you couldn't drive on the roads because of the fire hoses. So my dad put us in the sled and pulled us down the sidewalk, uh, down the street, around the corner, past the cemetery, up the hill, to the Lapse house where we rode out the fire. We were there. My parents came home to watch to make sure the house didn't burn down. The end. That's the story. I've told it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So many times you get to the point where they tell us the story. Go ask your grandmother. It's her turn to tell you the story. It's her turn over and over again. I mean, I, you can't blame it. It's a great story. It's got everything. It's got adventure. It's got danger. It's got a dramatic rescue. It's got suspense. It's got it all. It, it, it even has justice. They arrested the guy who set the fire and he went to prison. I mean, it's got everything. It's got everything. Over and over again, that story is told. I wonder, I wonder if you recognize when you read, when I just read this from Matthew 22, that Matthew 22 is a story that the Bible tells over and over and over again. You might, you might be excused for not recognizing. It might have been a challenge because of the form. It's a parable. But there are some ways in which the parable that Jesus tells here is the story of the Bible itself in miniature. This is the story of in a parable, God's dealing with his people in the Old Testament that crosses over into God dealing with his people in the New Testament. It touches on what it means to have a relationship with God. It touches on how we know him. It speaks to us about what it means to follow him. Our identity as followers of Jesus, as Christians, is in some ways wrapped up in this story. Now, uh, some of you will remember from last week, this is the final parable in a set of three parables that Jesus told that explain why the citizens of Jerusalem conspired against him and crucified him. We're very slowly getting to that scene in the Gospel of Matthew, that account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Why, why did they turn on him 
like that. This parable tells us that it was an act of great wickedness and an act of great folly. Why was Jesus crucified? Now, from one perspective, we can answer that question with the apostle Peter. It was part of the plan of God. Jesus is the savior who was slain before the foundation of the world. So that's true. From another perspective, in time, why was Jesus crucified? Because the citizens of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, were wicked fools. I want to walk through this passage with you this morning. I want to consider the three scenes that are here. And as we do, I want you to see if you can't find yourself in this story. Every person in this room is in this story somewhere. You're a part of it. I wonder if you can figure that out uh, when we read it, uh, when, when we go through it. Let's start the first scene, the king's feast and his unworthy guests. The king's feast and his unworthy guests. The setting for this parable that Jesus tells is a wedding feast. Uh, Wedding feasts in Jesus' day at this time, even for poor poor families, were multi-day celebrations. It was the most significant family, cultural, community event. Everybody would recognize this as a great day. And what's significant about this story that Jesus tells is that the king, the host of this feast, is the king, and the feast is for his son, Now, every king in Jesus' day would have more than one son, uh, but this is probably for the son, the heir, the firstborn son, the one who's going to be king. And thus, this is going to be a huge celebration, unrivaled in your lifetime. Uh, The whole uh, nation is thinking about this wedding. It has significant implications for them as a people. This is this is huge. They think of, it wasn't even that significant in comparison to this, but think of the attention that the world paid when Charles married Diana or Prince William married Kate Middleton. Think of uh, the attention when Harry and Meghan walked down the aisle. Every, I talk about them as their friends, my first name friends, and you know who I'm talking about because this is a big deal, right? We're all paying attention. And Jesus tells this story about a wedding reception like that, grand party. Uh, Back in this day, it was customary to send two invitations. Um, This is the day before um, ovens that are as easy to use as ours and before watches. So you'd send out first a general invitation and you would say to people, you're invited to the king's son's wedding feast. And it's gonna be, we think on this day, and uh, we'll let you know when it starts. That's the first invitation, and you would respond to that. Yes, I, I will be there, of course. Who wouldn't want to be there? I mean, this is the hottest ticket in town, right? It's the greatest invitation ever. And then on the day of the event, when, when everything was prepared and it was finally ready, you would send out servants to announce, okay, come now. Now is the time. Uh, the, between those invitations, you were to set aside the time, maybe get uh, yourself ready, get an outfit to wear to the wedding. You're you're supposed to prepare. That's between the first and the second invitation. Notice here what happens though in this story. Verse three, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. They refused. This deliberate, volitional choice, no, I will not come. There's two problems with this, 
refusal to come. If you think about it, you could identify them, I'm sure. Two problems. On the one hand, this is the invitation of the king. The king is inviting you, and he might say please, but when the king tells you to do something, whether he says please or not, you need to obey. This is a command from the king. The king is demanding your presence. It's a question of authority. The second problem is, with this uh, refusal, this is going to be an awesome feast. You should want to come. You have to come because it's the king, but you should want to be there because it's going to be a great feast, a lavish festival, a multi-day royal celebration. You should want to come. And what happens next is even more surprising. The king sends out more servants. And the servants go to convince the invited guests to come. Come because it's ready now, they say. And then they go over the menu. Oxen, fattened cattle, they've been slaughtered. This is going to be a meat feast to believe. This is going to be amazing. You should come. Now you should come. What do you think about this king at this point in time? I'm not sure he's acting very regally in in begging people to come to this party, his own subjects. He seems to be pleading with them, trying to convince them to come, that that they should want to come to this celebration. Let's pause for just a minute as as we think about that and, and, and recognize what Jesus is doing here. In this parable, the king is a representative of God himself, and the banquet is the kingdom and it is a place of joy and gladness. It's an honor to be invited. It's, to, it's an honor to be included in the king's lavish banquet, in God's lavish kingdom. God does not invite people to a funeral. He does not invite people to a work party. I have a suggestion for you based on my own personal experience. If you have free time ever in your life during the month of August, my suggestion to you is that you not tell Micah Fry that you are free during the month of August, any time during the month of August, because with great fervency, at least this is what happens to me, with great fervency, Micah will invite you to come to his house, but it will not be for a pool party, and, and there won't be a slaughtered oxen anywhere roasting over a pit, and, and it it won't be for a hayride. No, Micah, with great fervency, at the end of August, if you have any free time, will invite you to come and cut tobacco. Now, I, I mean, the more the merrier with every job, I think, you know, cutting tobacco, it, it's, it, the more the merrier you have there, that's, that's great. But I, I, have never, I have never responded to Micah's invitation despite his urgency and his fervency and his pleas. I asked Micah if I could tell you about his uh, uh, invitation to me during this sermon, and he said, yes, you can, as long as you come and cut tobacco next year. (laughs) So he's persistent. God invites you into something wonderful, something amazing, something lavish, his gladness, his joy, and he, he does it with an urgency, with a fervency, that's almost, almost undignified. 
Is this how the creator of the universe speaks to his creatures? Think about in Genesis chapter 3, uh, God has made this beautiful world in Genesis 1 and 2. He's put Adam and Eve in it. It's got everything they need, and they decide that there's something that they want that God hasn't provided for them, so they break the one rule that God has given them. And when he shows up, when God shows up at the end of the day to walk with them in the cool of the garden, they hide from him because they're ashamed that they have disobeyed him. And what does God do? He, he, he looks for them. Where are you? Where are you? Or think about another parable that Jesus told. Luke chapter 15, a man has two sons and one of them takes his inheritance and runs away and spends it in what the, his older brother calls wild living. And then he comes home ragged, penniless, uh, embarrassed, and, and, and he's, he's coming to look to be a slave in his father's house. And what does his father do? His father runs to greet him and throws his arms around him and they have a celebration to celebrate that he's come home. It's almost undignified. Matthew doesn't tell us the story, but in a few days, Jesus is going to take to himself the towel of a servant and he's going to get down on his knees and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. This is the job for the lowest of slaves in a household. Have you ever considered my friend, how low God has come in order to invite you into his happiness? Have you considered how he has condescended to us, how he has come down to us so that he might plead with us with fervency and with urgency to come to his banquet, to his happiness? And verse five tells us that they paid no attention. They paid no attention. As if, as if you could ignore this king and there'd be no consequences. We'll return to that in a minute. Notice their excuses. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Notice their excuses. They're not intent on doing evil things. These are good things. These are things that the Bible commends. It's good to go to the field and work. It's good to go uh, to the city and, and do your business. That, that's, that's good. These people think they have better things to do, though, than heed the command of the king. They have better plans, something that's, that's good, that's going to be better than this banquet. Dale Bruner, thinking about these workers, said, an occupation becomes sinister when it becomes a preoccupation. What's worse, some of these people, verse 6 tells us, responded violently. They took the servants, they seized them, they beat them, they killed them. And you're supposed to, at this point in time, think of the prophets in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, that God sends to his people Israel and how they mistreat those prophets. Or maybe you can think of how, even in our world, in certain places, Christian evangelists are treated today. I know what happened 20 years ago. Some of you will remember this. There's a man by the name of Graham Staines. He was 58 years old, and he was a native Australian, and he had lived in India for many years. He was there as a representative of Jesus Christ. He devoted himself to uh, caring for those in India who had leprosy. One day he was out driving, he had his two sons with him, two of his sons, his other children, 
Philip was 10 and Timothy was eight. They were driving, traveling across India. And one night they decided for convenience, they slept in their car uh, in their journeys. And they were surrounded in the middle of the night by 30 militant Hindus who poured kerosene all over the car and lit a match and set it on fire and Graham Staines and his sons burned to death. That is wicked. It is a wicked thing to do. The king has come. He has been low. He has, has come lowly. He has been patient. And apparently there's some people who think that he doesn't matter, that, that you can ignore him and it, it doesn't matter. The New Testament speaks about this. Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look what 2 Peter 3, 3 says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Jesus said he's going to return. Where is he? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now we'll skip down to verse 8. But do not forget, Peter says this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. I don't know how long it's been, but most of us have had some experience, at least, in listening to someone we might consider to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Sometimes it's tempting to be snide about those men who are waving their Bibles and talking about judgment, hellfire and brimstone. Maybe that's not your style. Maybe they'd be better off with a different strategy. Maybe it would be good for them to start talking a little bit more about the kindness of God. But you know the worst thing about hellfire and brimstone preachers? The worst thing is that they're 100% correct. And, and Jesus speaks to that in verse 7 when he says, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. These people will be crushed how can they be so wicked? How can they be so foolish? Are you that wicked? That foolish? Let's move on to scene two. Scene two, the king's feast and the crowds. The king's feast and the crowds. Verse seven had skipped ahead a little bit in time. It took him a little bit, I'm sure, to organize his army and to go and, and um, discipline his subjects. But verse 8 comes back to feast day. Here we are back in time at feast day. And he sends out his servants. The feast is ready. The feast is ready. Go out, he says to the servants, and uh, to the main routes, the intersections, the main routes in and out of the city, and invite anyone and everyone you can find to come to the feast. This is an image here in this parable of what's going to happen after the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus is going to send his people, God's people, this is what we do. We go everywhere and we invite everyone we can to come to God's great feast, to God's great kingdom. It's interesting how Jesus describes this, isn't it? He says, 
verse 10. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. Why does he say it that way? Jesus has been speaking to these Jewish leaders, and they undeniably think that they're the good. They think they're the good people who deserve God's kingdom. They are going to be in the kingdom because they deserve it, because they're good people. And they have a long list of bad people who don't deserve to be there. And uh, they're excluded in their imagination from the kingdom. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. This invitation goes broadly to anyone and everyone, the bad and the good. Bring them all in. Friends, everyone you know, everyone you see, everyone you encounter is welcome to come to God's great kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's because someone invited you. It was a parent. It was a pastor. It was a Sunday school teacher. It was a friend. It was a coach. Someone invited you. There's this inherent warning in this passage. Isn't there? Jesus is speaking to these good people. There's an inherent warning about the tendency that we sometimes have to count certain people out. We don't say this out loud. Sometimes we think it. Well, there's no way that person's going to believe. 200 years ago, 250 years ago, in the Church of Christ, we looked across the world and we saw people of different ethnicities and different continents. And uh, there was the, the majority of us 250 years ago said, They'll never become Christians because they're too primitive. Now we may say things like, not out loud, they're too old, they're too young, they're too rebellious. That person is too smart to become a Christian. They're too arrogant, they're too famous, they're too put together, they're too accomplished. That guy is too messed up to become a Christian. He's not going to want to hear what I have to say. Be careful, you're making two errors at that point in time. On the one hand, you're diminishing the grace of God. There are people that outside of God's ability to save. God's too weak, apparently, to save that person. You're diminishing God's mercy, his ability to save, and you're elevating yourself. You're a Christian. How are you going to finish this sentence? I became a Christian, but that person won't become a Christian because... How are you going to finish that? I'm just smarter than they are. I'm just, I'm just more spiritually minded than they are. I, I just have a better uh, upbringing than they do. That's why I'm a Christian and they're not. And, and I, I'm just more humble than they are. Right? Elevating yourself. Minimizing the grace of God. You have not met someone in your whole life that God cannot rescue. There's no student in your class, no prisoner in your jail, no patient in your clinic, no person in your neighborhood, no instrumentalist in your band, no player on your team, no employee in your company, no member of your family that cannot come to God's great feast. Jim Cimbala said, the church is a perfect place for people that no one else wants. Church is a perfect place for bad people to come. You can come. Anyone can come. You would be a fool not to come. This invitation is broad. It's for everyone, for everyone. Now, as broad as that, as that invitation is, because of it, you might be tempted to think that what comes next in scene three contradicts the broad invitation. Here's scene three, the guests without wedding clothes. 
the guest without wedding clothes. So the king comes and he starts to greet his guests and he sees a man who doesn't have wedding clothes and very gently he says, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man, he got caught. He knows that he doesn't say anything. He doesn't have anything to say. And oddly, the king has his attendants time, hand, and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The invitation is broad. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. But you have to come the right way. Anyone can come. You have to come the right way. In the context of this parable, the right way is to come with wedding attire. Everyone can come. There's only one way to come. And you have to come to God's kingdom, God's way. Jesus says in John 14, 6, this well-known verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Last Friday, uh, Luke had a soccer game. It started at 4 o'clock. It was done about 5.15, 5.20 or so. And Mannheim Central, 5.20, we were at Mannheim Central School. And Jenna, my daughter, was going to play in the marching band at Beamsdurfer Stadium and Millersville University's campus at 6.30. Watched Luke play, and I wanted to get to Millersville, have Luke take a shower and get dressed, and then go to the stadium and be there in time to hear Jenna play. What's the best way on a Friday night at 5.30 to get from Mannheim Central to Millersville? Yeah, so you're, you know, right? I, I was weighing the options in my head. 7.41, no. Good drive, mostly, but not today. Uh, tr- uh, Centerville, I'll come down Centerville. Centerville. It's terrible. I could walk faster. <laughs> oh. Now, some of you, the wonderful thing about living in Lancaster County, and some of you uh, have lived here long enough that you already have thought of six other ways that I could have gone. Right? That is not the way it is with God's kingdom. There's one way, only one way, and it's through Jesus. This is a parable about a son, a king throwing a feast for his son, and it is God's son that is the way. He'll make the way in just a few days. What, the, the wickedness and the folly that marks these people in this parable is endemic to all of us. We are all, by nature and choice, wicked and foolish people, and we bear the marks of it in multiple ways. Think of the ways that we treat one another as human beings sometimes. Think of the disregard that we have for God who is the creator. This wickedness, this foolishness is endemic. But on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that our wickedness and our folly deserve. In the context of the parable, he was on the cross destroyed. He was cast out to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He paid the penalty for our sin. He lived the life, Tim Keller says this, he lived the life that we ought to have lived, we should have lived, and then he died the death on the cross that we deserve to die. And anyone, anyone can come. You can come to God's great feast, but you must come through the Lord Jesus by turning and trusting in him. Many are called, Jesus says in verse 14, for many are invited, but few are chosen. The invitation is broad. 
Not everyone's going to respond. And Jesus uses this word chosen to remind us that the sovereign God is not surprised at that fact. You can come. Anyone can come to God through Jesus. Where do you find yourself in this story? Have you found yourself? Some of you, maybe, are the distracted fool. You're piddling around with admittedly good things, but you're ignoring the feast. Foolish. Some of you are (laughs) among the wicked, angry rebels. You don't like it when people talk to you about spiritual things and about Jesus. Some of you are the poorly clothed guest. You're interested, but you know, you don't really need Jesus' help. You think you're doing okay yourself. And some of you, many of you, are the guests who have been found already on the highway and byways of life, and you have a seat at God's great feast. Which one are you? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and it is with joy that we do so because of your lavish grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are, I I know that Jesus told this parable, and it was a warning to those who heard it, but uh, for those of us who have received the invitation and responded through Jesus, it's a parable of, of joy as we think about your lavish kingdom and, and that day in the come, to come in the future when we will uh, be in it with you, whole and free and at peace. Lord, um, we do recognize the warning that is in this passage and how we're supposed to think carefully about ourselves. I'd like you to, just for a moment here, if you just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for, for just a second, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a, that, that you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not sure where you stand in relation to God's great invitation, I'd love to talk to you more about that this morning. I'll be at the front of the auditorium. After the service, you can come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Father, we praise you for your great grace and the glad invitation that has come through Jesus, that we may be partakers of your feast. Come quickly, we pray, Lord Jesus. We anticipate and look forward to that great day. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.